Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and today we're bringing you something that's become an annual event here at the show, our yearly look at the customs and rituals that make up our lives. We call it Traditions. And it probably goes without saying that in this season of Hanukkah and Christmas and Kwanzaa, a lot of folks are thinking about their personal traditions. So we decided to kick things off today by hitting the streets to hear from Washingtonians about the rituals they hold dear. I think one of my favorites would have to be making gingerbread and hanging it on the tree. Getting together with family, um, hanging out by the Christmas tree, eating a big dinner. We always have, like... Some kind of fish, uh, which is very Italian, apparently. It's kind of weird, but we have this uh, hotel that we always stay at, and so we like get the same rooms, and we have bring down lights and decorate like the fake potted plant, and so it's it's a little untraditional, but it works because we're still together, and so it's nice. Those were people speaking with Metro Connections' Lauren Landau in downtown Washington earlier this week. When it comes to distinctively D.C. traditions, there's one many of you may remember, since it lasted more than 125 years around these parts. And while we officially bid it farewell in 1995, if you head to the heart of downtown Washington... All right, we're walking east on F Street Northwest. ...to 11th and F. Reaching 11th. You'll still see signs of it. And on the corner of the building where H&M is currently located... And I mean literal signs. You can see the words Woodward and Lothrop... When Woodward and Lothrop, or Woody's as it later came to be known, officially opened its doors in 1886, it was considered to be Washington's very first department store. Obviously that's not here anymore. We're about to talk about when it was here. And an excellent person to talk with about that very subject... I'm Michael. I'm Rebecca. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Is this guy. My name's Michael Lasicki. I'm a member of the Baltimore Symphony, but I'm also had this crazy passion of loving the history of department stores. And I've written six books on department stores, the last one being Woodward and Lothrop, a store worthy of the nation's capital. Now, you didn't make up that quote, a store worthy of the nation's capital, did you? No. Actually, a lot of publishers, they want to, you write a book, they want a subtitle. And you go up through the documents, and in the 1940s, they started using that in some context. And it's like, that is perfect. I can't come up with a better slogan than that. Right. So I want to talk about the way you open the book. In the very preface of the book, you are comparing the different department stores that Washington, D.C. once had to different divisions of General Motors cars. And you say that Woodward and Lothrop was the Buick of Washington. Can you talk about why you made that particular comparison? A Buick is a car that you would aspire to drive. And Woodward and Lothrop was a place where you aspired to shop at, whether you were buying something small or something big. I mean, it's not a Cadillac. It wasn't meant to be. That's down the street at Garfinkel's. It wasn't a Chevrolet where you pack the kids and you need a motor of solid transportation. That's that way towards F Street where Heck Company was. And it's also indicative of the time. Each of these cars had personalities and individuality, just as these stores did. Well, let's go back to the very beginning of yeah. Woodward and Lothrop, a.k.a. Woody's. Walter Woodward and Alvin Lothrop, they referred to the first seven years of their time in D.C. as the impossible years. Why was that? Well, it's a struggle getting a new concept going. One price stores. That was unheard of. Haggling was the way to go. And that's what they didn't like up in Boston. And, yeah, it's hard starting up a business and developing a new type of business. But they did it. It wasn't without hard work, but they did it. All right, moving up a few years, moving forward in time. How did the store do during the Great Depression? This was a time you needed entertainment. These stores were free entertainment, whether it was looking in the windows and getting you in there. And a lot of places developed their loyalty 
during the um, Depression, places like Garfinkel's didn't have to worry about it so much because their clientele was kind of secured being in the upper crust. Um, Hex and Landsbergs, that's a store people don't want to remember. I mean, they, they kind of took care of that, you know, the real, the people that needed some of the help. The Washington didn't suffer as much of the Depression as other cities did. And that probably also was some of the thing that helped Woody's. This is where you went for entertainment. In August of 1945, Woody's began to expand out into the suburbs. What prompted that expansion, and where'd they go first? Well, you know, you had to follow your customer. You had to follow your customer, and once the war ended, people wanted a car, people wanted a house, people were moving away. Cities were getting older, even stores were getting harder to maintain. And Woody's was not the first person to leave. Uh, Garfinkel's actually opened a small branch up at Spring Valley, but Hex up at Silver Spring was a big branch that really was a huge component here with suburban outreach. Woody's went to Chevy Chase. That Chevy Chase store played such a huge role in the store's development. So eventually Woody's began to downsize in a big way. Yeah. You know, you're looking at ways to cut costs. And one of the easiest ways besides, well, you got got the upkeep of the building, so you start cutting back on employees. And as you had the competition, oh, God, when Bloomingdale's came to town, I mean, Woody's kind of lost some of its direction. And then change of ownership and merchandise mishaps, let's say, that certainly didn't help with the longevity. Before we go on talking about the eventual fate of Woody's, I want to stop in the 1960s. You have a chapter in your book called The Disturbance. And it's a quote from someone referring to the April 1968 riots. What was the atmosphere like at Woody's leading up to the riots? What I find interesting with Washington is I felt, I feel, and I will say this, that integration came a little late compared to many of the other cities. Go up to Baltimore up the road. And Woody's was not a very open store. You had separate entrances here. You had separate restrooms. You had separate drinking fountains. That, unfortunately, was the practice. All these stores basically did it. The one store that really catered was a lower-end store called Morton's. Morton's left in 1993. That store was an open store. And it was Landsberg's that didn't want to refer to it as the riots. It was the disturbance. And, you know, business here dropped uh, about 50% within a few years. I mean, this was considered dangerous. Now, you write in your book that the 1980s, that decade was arguably the most eventful decade in Woody's history. How so? I mean, I know that by 1985, the store was no longer a locally owned D.C. institution, but how was it such an eventful time? The 1980s were all about mergers, takeovers, and some of those takeovers were hostile takeovers. And Woody's was susceptible. The businesses were not bringing in the cash, but the real estate was worth something and you know you had a you had a corporate raider come in in 1983 and that just kind of shook the board up you had families leaving the department store business i mean you didn't have that next generation fostering and they needed to survive so they bring other people to invest to think to keep the store going and you know by the time 1986 100th anniversary of woodward and lothrop and the big celebration here michael graves was part of the redesigning of it marion barry is they're given the key to the store and people having this galas here and right over the hump after that store it was just like okay where are we where are we as a business how are we going to survive the writing was on the wall you had Nordstrom coming into town that puts the fear of God in places like this and Woody's just tried to keep above water as long as it could so 
It's been some, some years now since Woodward and Lothrop was in business, although it still says it on the outside of the building. What do you hope people remember the store as? Because by the end, you know, times were not exactly as shiny and bright as they were at the beginning. How would you hope that Woody's would be remembered by Washington? You know, if Woody's was not important, Woodward and Lothrop, not important. We would not have a building that still says Woodward and Lothrop at the corner here at 11th and F. You would not see it over the canopy, and you wouldn't have that WL flag above it. They're not going to do that if it doesn't mean something. It's still an iconic building. Um, I mean, it's an institution. It's an institution. I, when I started writing these books, I really didn't think anybody still cared. And what's really touching and wonderful is that they do and that means people still care about their identity this is part of their lives and the fact that this building is again alive is the best that we can hope for and i think it's a wonderful thing michael lasicki is the author of woodward and lothrop a store worthy of the nation's capital now out from the history press to see photos of Woody's back in the day, including a shot of the famous Williamsburg Christmas windows from 1966, visit our website, metroconnection.org. I found the love that my heart has been longing for. I don't have to shop around, shop around. Some of you who used to shop at Woody's might remember Woody's cookies or English drop cookies. They were made with brown sugar, butter, and raisins. Well, the people we'll meet next know about cookies of all sorts, since every year, come the holidays, they bake tens of thousands. Lauren Landau headed to Woodbine, Maryland to get a taste of this 27-year-old tradition. On a Saturday morning, Vincent Shambari is busy in a woodbine basement, pulling cookie sheets in and out of a convection oven. We just finished up a batch of, um, these are the toffee cookies, and now we're getting ready to put together those chocolate cookies, and then they're going to bring some more down from upstairs, and we just keep these ovens moving the whole time. It's, it's incredible how the process works. As Shambari works the oven, dutifully rotating trays of cookies, Don Leon mixes up 50-pound trays full of cookie dough. The leader of this 27-year-old tradition, she and her kids drove up from D.C. the night before and got straight to work, opening up 130 pounds of butter and cracking 600-some-odd eggs so that cookie day would go as smoothly as possible. And at 6.30 this morning, my mom comes down, and by 10 of 7, two groups of people were already here ready to turn on the ovens and get started. So we got a pretty early start this morning. She says the goal is always to wrap things up as early as possible. But even if they finish by 5.30 or 6 p.m., that's still a full day's work. Standing on your feet for 10 hours on a concrete floor is very tiring. So we laugh about the people upstairs at the ball rolling table who get to sit on their butts and drink coffee and chat all day. And we we just don't think their job is that difficult. Difficult or no, everyone at Cookie Day has a job. In addition to the folks rolling balls of dough and the people down in the basement working the ovens and mixing up pounds of batter, there are also people delegated to packing the cookies into boxes, running said boxes to the cars parked outside, tallying up the numbers, keeping everyone fed, and watching the little ones, like two-year-old John, this year's youngest attendee. What's your favorite kind of cookie, John John? Clock. Clock. Clock? Clock? Oh, a clock isn't a cookie. Clock. His mom, Sarah Watson, says John's favorite cookie is chocolate chip. 
But speaking of clocks, Don Leon says a lot of time goes into planning and pulling off cookie day. Actually, well, we started a week ago buying ingredients and mixing up the first couple of batches of dough that go into the freezer. And then my parents work and get things out of storage and started putting together boxes all week. And they were staging the equipment around so everything would be ready. So they've been working very hard. For her parents, Ken and Sharon Pickett, another tradition is the annual road trip they take to buy rare but necessary ingredients. My parents actually drive to Hershey every year because there's one particular cookie we make that requires these cinnamon chips that you just can't find in the grocery store. So it's just easier to drive to Hershey and they get all the chocolate chips up there. The Picketts are an integral part of Cookie Day. And not just because they host the event on the farm Ken's family has owned for more than 120 years. The tradition traces back to 1987, during Dawn's sophomore year in college, when she asked her father for a heavy-duty mixer. She was expecting a KitchenAid or a similar household device. Instead, she got a big surprise. Well, me, heavy-duty was commercial. Called from college, and that's what she wanted for Christmas. So I've run into a used 20-quart mixer, Hobart mixers. I bought that and, and gave her that. Dawn says she couldn't even mix a single batch of cookies in that original industrial mixer if she wanted to. You know, what do you do with a 20-quart mixer? You can't make one batch. You actually can't make one batch. It doesn't, it, like, it's lost in the mixer bowl. So we decided to invite some friends over and family, and know, there might have been six or eight of us, and everybody brought some ingredients, and we made cookies together. She says they baked about 1,000 cookies that day, but their first experience was a far cry from the carefully orchestrated event that Cookie Day has evolved into. We literally were standing at the mixer with cookbooks, going through, trying to decide by committee, you know, what do we think we can make, and what do we have the ingredients for? And then there were years where we were running off to the grocery store in the middle because we had everything except, you know, we need another dozen eggs. Leon says they started looking for ways to work smarter and more efficiently. They bought new ovens, ditched recipes that didn't hold up, and started buying all of the ingredients in bulk. You've got this flatbed cart full of gigantic amounts of sugar and butter and eggs. And usually when I go with my dad, you know, someone will look at you and say, oh, are you doing a little baking? And then he starts the story. This year, the crew made 19 different types of cookies, ranging from your standard recipes to some more inventive ones. Chocolate chip, ginger, toffee, snickerdoodles, peanut butter, orange, cinnamon chip, potato crunch. Potato crunch. Oh, sorry, pecan crunch, but it's made with potato chips. It's a shortbread cookie. Yes, very interesting ingredients. Okay, sugar cookies. Eventually, it was time for me to head out, but I couldn't leave without trying a cookie. So I snuck into the pantry with some of the younger helpers to sample their favorites. I'm going to go to crackle because of the way it, like, forms. Dawn's kids have been attending cookie day their entire lives. Her eight-year-old daughter, Linnea, says she wants to uphold the tradition, and big brother Edvin agrees. We get to see all of our parents' friends, friends and our friends, and my, of course my teachers are here, and we also get to eat cookies, so. Well, it's been going for 27 years so far. You think you guys can keep it going for 27 more? Mm-hmm. And somebody else can carry the cookies up and down the steps. By the end of the day, the team has made 30,401 cookies. But Dawn says the real purpose of Cookie Day is as much about spending time with friends and family as it is about the treats. And that might be the sweetest part of all. I'm Lauren Landau. (laughs) 
time for a break, but when we get back, musical traditions. From acapella intonation in Old Town. How long the spirit is moving you is how long those songs will last. To toe-tapping, bluegrass style. Luckett's was this, was this oasis for us. When we went to Luckett's the first time, we were actually shocked. We had an absolute listening crowd. That and more is just ahead on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson, in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. Today our theme is traditions, and one of the traditions many of us take part in this time of year is gathering with family from near and far. Well, the family we'll meet next just welcomed home one of its youngest members, seven-year-old Nico Loza. See, in June, Nico suffered a severe brain injury. Since then, he's been at D.C.'s MedStar National Rehabilitation Hospital, where he's been relearning how to do, well, pretty much everything. Nico's doctors say he's making great progress, but he and his family are still grappling with what happened that day in June when police found Nico crying in a hotel room in Northern Virginia. Jacob Benston brings us his story. Ready? Super! Super Nico! Woo-hoo! Nico Loza seems to be everyone's favorite seven-year-old here at the National Rehabilitation Hospital. He's clever and funny and a little mischievous. Do you remember what we used to use when you first got here? Speech therapist Missy Lakata has been working with Nico since he first arrived. Back then, he couldn't talk at all. Okay. He had to use buttons to communicate. Two choices, yes or no. Remember the buttons? Yeah. We don't need anything like that. Just your voice now. Yes and no button. The yes and no button on his tray. I love the no. Yeah, I know you love the no button. Do you want to go to therapy? No. No. <laughs> no. You want to take a shower? No. <laughs> you want to go downstairs? No. Nico still struggles to talk clearly, but he's making progress. Nico's dad, Luis Losa, sees it when he comes to the hospital each day after work. Some things came slowly. Some things came just one day to the other. It's like talking, for example. It was like when I left one day, he wasn't talking. The next day I came and he was talking. I couldn't believe it. Probably that's one of the happiest days in my life when I heard him talking again. Probably the worst day was that day six months ago. June the 12th. First of all, they were missing. Denise Puntriano is Nico's grandmother. It was her daughter, Melissa, Luis's ex-wife, who was missing, along with Nico. For a couple of days, we didn't know anything about them. After, like, the second day, you know, I mean, none of us ever dreamt that what had really happened. And then when they found them, well... The police called me and said that they found them. With, I don't know how many, you know, bottle pills just all over the place. Uh, she committed suicide, and Nico was in a hotel, and then Nico was by her side, uh, crying. And exactly what she did to Nico, nobody knows. He doesn't remember what happened to him. He doesn't know. All we tell him is that his brain got hurt, and that's why he's here. That's why he cannot walk, and he couldn't talk. What he tells us is that he, they went to a hotel. Mommy told him they were going to take a break or some other point, he said, an adventure. 
Then he talks about that he woke up. At first, Nico seemed fine, his dad says, but then he started going numb on his right side. What I first thought is that he was under so much stress at all that happened with his mom and, and he was going to be okay. It was just a matter of going to hospital. Everybody tell me, oh, he's going to be okay and then go home and keep going with your life. But that's not what they told me. Over the next week, Losa watched as his son slipped away. Speech, movement, the ability to eat. I was losing him. I didn't know if he was going to talk again, if he was going to, I didn't know if he was going to survive. When Nico first came here, what we knew was that he had injury to his brain and it involved multiple areas of his brain. Dr. Justin Burton is the medical director of Children's Rehab here. He says Nico's injuries to the deep structures of the brain made the simplest movements a challenge. What that does is throws off sort of your movement patterns. So if you're trying to initiate a movement or trying to do something, your muscles fire in an abnormal way. And your arm goes a different way than you expect, or your leg moves in a different way than you expect. To overcome that challenge, Nico's days here have been packed with every kind of therapy. Speech therapy, physical therapy, occupational therapy. You can pass it. Mm -hmm. You can pass it to your right hand. Occupational therapist Olivia White spends five hours a week with Nico. So we're playing Connect Four. You you totally cheated. So this is not a winning game. This is not a winning game at all. And we're playing Connect Four. And Nico, we're working on which hand? Lefty. We're working on lefty, so working on the coordination of his left hand, um, but also working on him being able to incorporate the right hand into these functional activities. No, I'm done. <laughs> and right hand is hard. Nico's surrounded by people at the National Rehabilitation Hospital who adore him, but no amount of affection can make a hospital the same as home. And that's where Nico was headed a week ago. His family's getting instructions on how to use the brand new wheelchair. Nico's still working up toward being able to walk on his own. He's going back to school, second grade. Nico, when do you start school again? Monday. Nico, Everyone wants to say bye to Nico one more time. Nico, can I get one more hug? All right, I'll see you soon, okay? But as they head out of the hospital, Nico's dad and grandmother are still coming to terms with what happened to Nico. I've been through every single emotion. <laughs> uh, anger, anger towards his mom. For a long, long time, I, I felt so angry and trying to find an answer to why she did it. The anger that I had and have And unfortunately, I'm having a very hard time dealing with forgiving her. I'm not going to find the answer. The only one that has the answer is her. Right now, I have to focus on my family, on Nico's recovery. I can't fathom that my own child would try to... I know she didn't want to hurt him. I know she wanted to take him with her. Someday, I guess I will be able to face the tragedy of losing my daughter. But right now, it's almost like... I don't know who she is. It's, it's it's very hard. She knows that as Nico gets older, he'll have more questions about his mother and about what happened. For now, she wants him to know his mom loved him. She was an absolutely doting mother. And that he's still surrounded by family. The hospital lobby door opens onto a wet, wintry day. Puntriano is rushing Nico and his dad to meet her moving truck arriving that afternoon from Florida. She's relocating to Northern Virginia so she can be close to Nico and help him as he learns to do more and more for himself. 
I'm Jacob Fenston. We'll turn now to several stories about our region's musical traditions. In just a bit, we'll visit the tiny Virginia town that's home to what may be the world's longest bluegrass concert series. But first, Emily Berman brings us a story about religious music, specifically African-American religious music. A number of African-American congregations in our region are known for their music. Maybe you've heard members of the United House of Prayer for All People playing outside the Verizon Center. Or perhaps you've heard of Keith Dominion Church on Kansas Avenue Northwest, where steel guitars figure heavily in prayer. But in the heart of Old Town Alexandria, you'll find a lesser-known congregation, one that makes its musical mark a cappella. The Church of God and Saints of Christ describes itself as the oldest African-American congregation adhering to the tenets of Judaism. Members meet on Saturdays in a small white church they call Tabernacle 16, since it was the 16th tabernacle in the church's founding state of Virginia. Emily Berman takes us inside Tabernacle 16 for a Sabbath service to learn more about the congregation's special musical tradition. The service here at the Church of God and Saints of Christ doesn't start for 20 minutes, but the choir is already going through one heck of a warm-up. There is a certain harmonic structure to our music, and it's a sound that is known by us, and um, it was given to us. That's the only way that I can explain it, really. Elder Aaron Carey is the general chorister of the church. In keeping with ancient Jewish custom, there are no instruments in the prayer service, just voices. We have no notation or anything that we sing by. It's never, it, it, it has never been written down. It's really from mouth to ear. Since the church began in 1896, the songs have been passed down bar by bar by leaders like Elder Carey. Though much of the terminology is similar to Christian faiths, the group views Jesus as a prophet and not the Son of God. They congregate around an ark and a Torah scroll and recite many traditional Jewish prayers, though mainly in English, not Hebrew. Professor Kip Lornell teaches courses about black American religious music at George Washington University. The way that new songs are brought into the tabernacles is people dream them, which I found fascinating. So these songs come to people in visions and dreams. They are then brought to their annual gathering down in Suffolk. Which happens during Passover in the spring, when the more than 40 tabernacles from all around the U.S. get together. They're kind of presented to a larger audience, and if they are seen with favor, they start to be sung in the various tabernacles. And ultimately, if they prove to be popular enough, they will end up in the hymnal. The songwriting is entirely democratic. Everyone in the congregation is encouraged to create songs, as long as the lyrics are based on the Torah or Scripture. Anything that comes up... um, you know, we know that it's divinely given, and uh, we, we are honored to try to learn these songs. Most songs are call and response with very few solos, and they're all in at least four-part harmony. The service today is more than 90 minutes, almost entirely sung. 
It is the most musical service that I can think of of any church I've ever been to. And I've been to a wide variety of black American churches and then mainstream white Protestant churches. Just about everyone in the congregation joins in the four-part harmonies, even the children. And no one has a hymnal. The only way to tell who's in the choir and who's not is by what they're wearing. Male choir members wear brown suits with long coats and a kippah, or head covering. The women wear baby blue silk shirts and long brown skirts with a baby blue hair ribbon. The brown and blue are symbolic, says the Tabernacle's pastor, James Parker, of the meeting of earth and sky, of human and divine. With everyone wearing the same uniform, then we're not divided by economic status. We're not divided by educational degrees or anything like that. We truly are brothers and sisters of God together. Most of the Tabernacles, 100 or so members, have been part of the congregation their whole lives and remember a time when services lasted all day long. If the Spirit caught you, you continued to sing that song as long as the Spirit was moving you. In that regard, it's like a go-go performance. It lasts as long as it needs to last, which is unlike like the Lutheran and Methodist churches I've been to. 11.55, the sermon's done, a song or two, and you're finished, and you know you're done by 12. That ain't going to happen here. Elements of a traditional Jewish service combine with the sounds of 19th century spirituals, says Lornell, to create this church's simple yet powerful sound. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Here in Washington, Lornell says, there really isn't anything like this church, musically, culturally, or spiritually. I'm Emily Berman. You can find more about the musical traditions at Tabernacle 16 and see photos of the service Emily attended on our website, metroconnection.org. All right, continuing in the musical vein, we head now from Old Town Alexandria to the tiny hamlet of Luckett's, Virginia. Seven miles north of Leesburg, Luckett's is home to an antique store, a gas station, one stoplight, and a very, very special 40-year musical tradition. Jared Walker has more. There's not much to do in Luckett's, Virginia. It's just a small cluster of homes at the crossroads of U.S. Route 15 and Stumptown Road. But on Saturday nights, this intersection becomes a beehive of activity, all centered on the historic Luckett's schoolhouse. This 100-year-old building now serves as a community center, but it's best known as the venue for perhaps the oldest bluegrass concert series in the world. Who's to say there's not some little place buried in the Ozarks that we haven't heard about, but to our knowledge it is. That's Paul Garvin, president of the Luckett's Bluegrass Foundation. This all-volunteer, non-profit organization has been the catalyst behind the series since 2007, but the event can trace its origins to a single person, a local bluegrass musician and promoter named E.J. Spence. 
On a blustery January day more than 40 years ago, Spence ran into the president of the Luckett Civic Association on the street in nearby Leesburg. They got to talking about the old schoolhouse that had been abandoned when a new elementary school was constructed. And the idea of using the building to put on bluegrass shows came up. Garvin says the fledgling series likely saved the dilapidated building from falling into total disrepair. It was in pretty bad shape at the time. Bluegrass was one of the things, perhaps the primary thing, that kept it going through a bunch of lean years, but they patched up the broken windows and things like that. Repairs kept the building functional until the community center underwent a $2 million renovation two years ago. But Garvin says modernization hasn't changed the intimate feel of the performance hall. If we have a full house, it's very tightly packed in there. And people put up with that because there's just something about the ambience. It's 7 o'clock on Saturday night at the old Luckett Schoolhouse. It's time for bluegrass. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much. Thank you. Tonight, the house is packed to the rafters. It's standing room only at the 225-seat venue. While the schoolhouse serves as a dramatic backdrop, Luckett's volunteer and concert MC Bob Veach says the crowds are the most important part of the event. I think one of the reasons the bands like to play here so much is that everybody who comes here comes for the music. Here, we're serious about our bluegrass. Veteran musician Dudley Cannell agrees. The only places that were available for us in the late 70s, early 80s, in the D.C. area were clubs, nightclubs. And actually, nightclubs is a stretch. And the people that came out to see us, they liked the music okay, but they came out to also socialize and to drink and to have a good time and blow off a little steam at the end of the week. Luckett's was this oasis for us. When we went to Luckett's the first time, we were actually shocked. We had an absolute listening crowd. It was thrilling. That band was the Johnson Mountain Boys, which went on to become one of the most important and popular bluegrass acts of the 1980s. Cannell credits those wonderful Luckett's crowds with much of their success. It enabled us to completely change our show because we weren't trying to play over the den of beer bottles clinking and people talking. We played to the people that came there to listen to music. It was one of the most important parts of our early career. When the Johnson Mountain Boys decided to disband in 1987, there was little doubt in Cannell's mind where the final show would be held. You chose Luckett's as your final concert. I wanted to ask you why. Tradition and loyalty, and I couldn't think of a better place to close the door on that on that band than the place where we started. The live recording from that show was released as a full-length album and eventually garnered a Grammy nomination. While that moment served as a high-water mark for Luckett's Bluegrass, one that might never be topped, the series is as strong as ever, backed by crowds filled with enthusiastic regulars like Francis Carpenter. What keeps you coming back? It's just good music. My husband and I generally try to get out here 90% of the time, and the entertainment has been fantastic. Although the crowds are healthy, they skew to an older demographic. Luckett's volunteer and live sound engineer, Paul Hope, says this presents a long-term dilemma. Where do you see this event moving in the future? The only way I can see it going forward in the future is if we can find somebody to pass it on to, because we don't want it to end with us. 
Luckett's Bluegrass Foundation President Paul Garvin says his organization is committed to preventing that, even if it means moving away from the traditional style with which Luckett's has long been associated. I look at the goal as keeping the program going. If it means going away from the traditional stuff and trending more towards the contemporary, we're going to have to do that. Garvin and the other volunteers realize that the event itself has become a tradition. It transcends the music. And just maybe, with a little bit of luck and a lot of hard work, the old schoolhouse will be filled for 40 more years of Saturday nights. I'm Jared Walker. Jared Walker hosts Open Mic on WAMU's Bluegrass Country at 105.5 FM and 88.5 HD Channel 2 in Washington, D.C. He'll be airing the first show from the 40th season of the Luckett's Bluegrass Concert Series on the 14th and 20th. For more information, visit our website, metroconnection.org. break, we'll hear about a new take on a tried-and-true theatrical tradition. Obviously, the structure of our town is what Dara used to write our suburb, but it wasn't a copycat. And we'll go knocking around the region in another installment of our Door to Door series. That's all coming up on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and with the holiday season upon us, we're bringing you our annual show on traditions. We'll turn next to a tried-and-true theatrical tradition, one that's gone on for 75 years on countless stages nationwide. This play is called Our Town. It was written by Thornton Wilder and is being produced here by the Westport Country Playhouse. Name of the town, Grover's Corners, New Hampshire. Just over the line from Massachusetts. Yes, we're talking about that 1938 American classic, Our Town. This particular production dates back to 2003. That's Paul Newman playing the role of the stage manager, the narrator of the three-act show. But starting December 19th at Theater J in Northwest D.C., audiences will be treated to a world premiere play that takes Wilder's tradition and gives it more than one twist. So this play is called Our Suburb. It was written by Dara Cloud. It is her response to a play with a similar title by Thornton Wilder, which she has seen a lot. Our Suburb takes place not in Grover's Corners, but in Skokie, Illinois, in 1976 and 1977. Same time as a famous attempted march by a group of neo-Nazis, an event which figures heavily in Dara Cloud's story. Our Suburb is directed by Judith Ivey, a Tony Award-winning actress who's also directed quite a bit for the stage. I recently sat down with her after a rehearsal, and she told me what drew her to Cloud's play. I'm a huge Thornton Wilder fan, and it obviously the structure of our town is what Dara used to write our suburb, and I thought the way she reinvented it was just fantastic. And a lot of the themes that she brought up that are a little more modern concerns in our world were quite astounding, namely that the suburb was supposed to be the safe haven for 
the world when everyone left the big cities to go live in the suburbs. And sure enough, the suburbs had just as much danger and, uh, uh, let's say, depravity going on as in the cities. So I thought that was an interesting take, which is, of course, our town. Thornton Wilder is saying, you know, these sweet little sleepy little towns, there's a lot more going on than we all choose to recognize. And Thornton is the girl, and she lives in a house that is in front of the house of Ricky Edelman, and they meet and kind of fall in love on the bus, I guess the way George and Emily fall in love at the soda shop in our town. You going to college? Of course. Where? Uh, East, maybe. Uh, Yale, Wesley, Cornell, or Brown. I could go west, but I'm not sure if people read there. Um, <laughs> going north would be stupid, and people in the south seem kind of slow. My mom goes to Northwestern. Oh, well, my mom went there. How come you don't want to go there? It's here. <laughs> and Ricky is from a Jewish family, and in the case of Thornton, uh, a family who is a Christian family. And here they fall in love, and what does that mean to the families? So they're dealing with uh, a lot of levels that Thornton Wilder never dealt with, really. And then we have a stage manager. She's really our guide through the play, just like in our town. But our stage manager is a young woman, not uh, an elderly man. And uh, in this case, she reveals that she's going to play the two younger sisters, one in each family, because Ms. Cloud wrote way too many characters for a theater the size of <laughs> Theater J to afford to hire. <laughs> Due to the fact that the playwright wrote way too many roles for a small theater to be able to afford, tonight I will simultaneously be playing Lisa Edelman and Annie Major, younger siblings. I'm not getting paid extra. <laughs> so it's fun watching her run back and forth and become Annie Majors, who is Thornton's little sister, and Lisa Edelman, who is Ricky's little sister. So it isn't just a scene-by-scene scene parallel of our town. Derek, it keeps you guessing. I'm discovering that since we're in the middle of rehearsal. But yeah, it, it isn't just let me mimic it. She takes it beyond what Thornton Wilder did, which is... It has a more active thrust rather than a reflective thrust. Uh, a lot of our town is looking back. I mean, literally, she comes back you know, from the dead and says, I want to go back and picks her 16th birthday. In this case, she wants to go forward and see the future. Five years from now, you can't pick the future. Well, I was always too aware to be happy in the present. Can I be that? I need to go somewhere where I don't know what will happen next. There's no part for you to play there. Well, I'm not there. You've been written out. I don't care. I want to see how it all turns out. I want to see my mom and find out if she found true love and the right career. Morning or afternoon? Cocktail hour. In case she's still drinking, I want to be able to talk to her. She won't be able to hear you. You have no lines. All right. All right. Just get me there. Do you think audiences will have a different experience if, say, you know, the man who's never seen Our Town but his wife has seen Our Town, they're both watching Our Suburb, will they have different experiences of the show? Probably. I am curious whether you even have to know Our Town. I actually don't think you do. I think Our Suburb stands on its own. It doesn't need a reference like that. 
if you do know our town, um, then it will certainly there will be echoes of it and uh, moments where you will recognize it. I don't know how well people, you know, know our town. I know it because I'm studying it along with our suburb. And I was in it when I was in college and played Emily. So I, I know it fairly well. So you played Emily in college. Yes. I was. Uh, I went to Illinois State University in normal Illinois. And it was our American College Theater Festival entry. I know we made it all the way to state or however they measured that. But we didn't come to Washington, D.C., whereas it always ends in Washington, D.C., as a matter of fact. Have you had other experience in Washington, either as an actor or as a director? Yes. Washington, D.C. figures very heavily in my career, beginning with that story right there. Uh, I was in a play in Chicago that came to D.C. when I was 23, and uh, it was at the National Theater. Then uh, I decided to leave Chicago and move to New York, and the first job I got was at the Folger Library Theater in D.C., so I came down here and did Whose Life Is It Anyway? And then I came back to the arena and did Design for Living, and I've been here at the Kennedy Center so I've been here a lot as an actress. This is my first directing job here. It sounds like D.C.'s been very good to you. It's been very good to me. I love Washington, D.C. I love the atmosphere of it and the, the tone of it. It's very calming to me. Maybe if I was in politics, I wouldn't feel that way. But um, it's, a, it's, it's a great theater town, I think. That was Judith Ivey, director of Our Suburb, running December 19th through January 12th at Theater J. You can find more information about the world premiere play on our website, metroconnection.org. weekly trip around the region. On today's Door to Door, we'll visit the Hawthorne neighborhood of Northwest D.C. and Arlington Ridge, Virginia. My name is Marian Becton. I live in the Hawthorne neighborhood of Chevy Chase, and I am 59 years old. The Hawthorne neighborhood is located in Chevy Chase, D.C. It is north of downtown, and it's bound by Oregon Avenue, Western Avenue, and the Pinehurst Tributary. When I walk outside in Hawthorne, and I do it regularly since I have a dog, a lot of green space, a lot of children, a lot of mature trees, well-managed homes, a lot of people walking, and of course the proximity to the park, so we get to see the park every day. I think Hawthorne represents a really mixed bag, so all kinds of people live here. Uh, there are older retirees here. A lot of new young families have come in the past several years, blue-collar, white-collar, uh, we have um, every kind of demographic mix, age, every racial mix, very diverse neighborhood. In Hawthorne particularly, there are probably a few things people don't know, but what I really would like people to know is that life in, in the District of Columbia can be very good. It's very pastoral, it's a very clean neighborhood, it's a very neighborly Neighborhood. So I think when people think about cities, they think that it's probably so fast-paced and, and not as kind and not as gentle. And this neighborhood is very kind and very gentle. 
Hi, this is Katie Buck, and I am 53, and I live in the Arlington Ridge neighborhood, which is a part of Arlington County in the south end of Arlington County. We are the closest community to Washington, D.C., to our north. To the east of us is Crystal City, and to the west is 395, and to the south is Alexandria, Virginia. The history of Arlington Ridge is very rich. It dates back to the Revolutionary and Civil Wars. Fort Scott Park was a park during the Civil War where the Union built a fort to protect Washington. The architecture is very mixed in Arlington Ridge. We have a number of homes that are nearing 100 years in age that were built for people to have vacation homes up on the ridge overlooking the Potomac River. And of course, like any community, we've been experiencing a number of renovations occurring as well as some teardowns and new homes being built. I love living in Arlington Ridge because we have great accessibility to Washington, D.C., Alexandria, National Airport, yet we are an old community with strong neighbors and beautiful homes and trees. We heard from Katie Buck in Arlington Ridge and Marion Becton in Hawthorne. If you think your neighborhood should be part of Door to Door, send an email to metro at wamu.org or visit us on Facebook, that's facebook.com slash metroconnection.org. And to see a map of all the doors we've knocked on so far, visit our website, metroconnection.org. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jacob Fenston, Emily Berman, Jared Walker, and Lauren Landau. WAMU's Managing Editor of News is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's Managing Producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our Editorial Assistant. Lauren Landau and John Hines produce Door to Door. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU Engineering and Digital Media teams for their help with production and MetroConnection.org. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. You can find all the music we use each week on MetroConnection.org. Just click on a story, and you'll find information about its accompanying song. And if you missed part of the show, you can stream the whole thing on our website by clicking the This Week on MetroConnection link. You can also subscribe to our podcast there or find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we'll check back with some of our favorite Metro Connection interviewees on a show we're calling Follow-Ups. We'll catch up with the folks at Fraker's, the Capitol Hill hardware store that was destroyed by fire, and hear about their plans to rebuild. We'll visit Sarah Gray, the mother who lost her infant son, and learn how she's honoring his memory. And we'll return to Virginia's Holy Cross Abbey, where the monks are taking big steps to keep their home surviving and thriving. It's all turned out to be extremely encouraging for us and encouraging for those watching us. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.